0: I just realized how thankful I am to have electricity. <laughs> if you weren't here last week, our electricity in this part of town was off. We we didn't think we were going to have this service. And then the power came on about 9.05, and so we had told most people we're not going to have a service, but we thought, well, we're going to quit turning people away. and then. We came out and had a little service, but gosh, it's so great to see all of you here today and all of you watching online, those of you in North, we're so glad that you're here. Well, I want to talk about the NFL Hall of Fame for just a moment. You know, if you're an NFL fan, that the NFL does have a Hall of Fame like most major sports. It happens to be in Canton, Ohio, and every year, a handful of players are inducted. It is not easy to get in the Hall of Fame. Think about this for a moment. Over 27,000 players have played professional NFL football. Only 346 as of 2021 are in the Hall of Fame. Thousands of players have made headlines. They've made the Pro Bowl. Made, they, some of them have made All-Pro, but they can't get into the Hall of Fame without a ticket. To make it in, And this is where we're going to like segue into the message today. To make it in, you have to do things that make history over a long period of time. I've had the privilege of speaking in Canton, Ohio a number of times. And the church leaders of this great church that I've spoken for have taken me on tours. So I I know what it's like to walk past the rows of bronze busts and memorabilia that tell the stories of gridiron greatness. And today, I have saved the best jersey for last. I'm wearing what is to my mind, the greatest of them all. But for those of you who don't like the Cowboys, I I just ask for your indulgence because I grew up in that area. So have pity on me. Uh, Everyone, as I said to you in the first week, everyone should have pity on the suffering. And so consequently, you know, forgive me if you hate the Cowboys. And on top of that, I understand that... uh, Being a Cowboys fan today is not easy. The standing joke in Texas, where I'm from, is people say when I die, I want the Dallas Cowboys to be my pallbearers because they can let me down one more time. (laughs) What's really bad about that is how long that's been a joke. (laughs) It goes back into the last millennium. But to be honest with you, uh, I still watch the Cowboys, and, and I'll watch them today, probably a little bit. But I did not become a Dallas Cowboy fan in recent history. I became a Cowboys fan back in the 60s. And I have a player that I've always looked up to and respected and admired. And I'm wearing his jersey today. His name is Roger Staubach. It is interesting to me that even though Roger has not played for over 40 years... Whenever the polls are taken of who is the greatest Dallas Cowboy of all time, in fact, one was just taken in 2020, Roger is always number one. And it is funny to me, I honestly believe to this day he could win any political contest that he ran for in the state of Texas. There's a reason, though, why I think we honor Roger. I mean, certainly he was a gridiron great. He is the one who threw the original Hail Mary. In fact, he named the original Hail Mary. Captain Comeback, Captain America. But the reason why I think we honor Roger and why to this day he is so special is Roger, although he was drafted in the NFL in 1964, he did not play until 1969. Heisman Trophy winner coming out of the Naval Academy, instead of going into the Professional Football League, National Football League, he honored his commitment, and instead of going to the Cowboys, he went to Vietnam and served as in the Navy for four years, and then came out and did something nobody had ever done before. After taking four years off of football, he became perhaps one of the greatest legends of all time. And I will never forget, the first time I went into the NFL Hall of Fame, I thought, I have got to find Roger's bust. Well, I'm gonna talk about the fact that God has a Hall of Fame too. It's not in Canton, it's in the Bible. In fact, if you wanna find God's Hall of Fame and you don't have to turn there right now, although it wouldn't hurt, And I hope that maybe you'll read this chapter before the end of the day, maybe as your daily devotion. But God's Hall of Fame is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And it's as if you are walking through the Bible, the family of God Hall of Fame, and you're looking at the heroes from the past. What's different about God's Hall of Fame from the NFL Hall of Fame is they're not picked by a committee of sports writers. God picked these people. And they didn't get there by doing something with the pigskin, they were inducted for doing what God values most, and that is faith. So when you read Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to read about the various men and women who are in the Hall of Fame, but you'll notice that their their induction or their, their display in the Hall of Fame always begins with the phrase, by faith. By faith, he did this. By faith, she did that. Over and over. By faith, that's what God values most. Now, When we look at a lot of the names, we're not necessarily surprised to see them there. For instance, Noah is there. And the Bible tells us by faith he built an ark. Abraham, he's the father of faith. We're not surprised that Abraham is there. Sarah is there taking her place in the Hall of Fame. Moses is in the Hall of Fame. Probably one of the most interesting inductees is Rahab is in the Hall of Fame. She had been a prostitute, but she turned her life over to God and became, really, I would argue, the catalyst for the Israelites going into Canaan. Well, as we would go through that Hall of Fame, especially if you've been with us in this series, we're not surprised that Joseph was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I think if you've been with us for these last seven weeks, you would have nominated him. And you could have presented so much evidence why he should be in God's Hall of Fame. You might say something like this. By faith, he put aside his pain of being sold by his brothers and gave Potiphar his best shot. Hey, that works for me. Or you might say, by faith, he didn't give up when he was jailed for 10 years on a trumped-up false charge. That would take a lot of faith. Or by faith, he brought his a came to helping the warden when he was in the prison. Or by faith, he stood before Pharaoh and gave God the glory for the ability to interpret dreams. Or if you were here last weekend, and by the way, thank you for your kindness. So many of you responded about this series, and and that's meaningful to me. By faith, you could say he restored his brothers and brought his family to Egypt. So we could go on and on. I mean, Joseph is such a sterling character. So when we're going through Hebrews 11 and looking at the Hall of Fame and why they were inducted, There's so many reasons why we would want Joseph to be inducted. But it is interesting to me that God nominates Joseph to the Hall of Fame class of 1625 BC with these words. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. I find it significant, and this is the reason why I'm closing out my part of the series with this message. I find it significant that with all the awesome things Joseph did, he made the Hall of Fame with his funeral prearrangements. You saw what I saw. You know, we're, we're always being told, you know, especially if you're in middle age and everything, you ought to just go down to the funeral home, make your funeral prearrangements. you know. And I always think to myself, well, what if the rapture happens and I've done all that for nothing? I'm sure it's a good idea. But it is interesting to me that Joseph is in the Hall of Fame because of his funeral arrangements. So what was it about Joseph's final instructions that God loves so much? We'll get into that in just a moment. Our series is called Going Pro because we're looking at some Proverbs, the book of wisdom, and coached up because we're looking at the life of Joseph and we're learning from his life. So here's what we're going to walk away with today in this short and simple message. When God looks for women who he sees as pros, if you really want to go pro, when God looks at men and he says, there's a pro, evidently it's because they think in terms of legacy. In other words, these are people who spend their time on the earth Understanding that it's a temporary assignment and they're thinking about what's going to outlast them. They're thinking about the echo effect of the life that they lived. And if you think about that, it fits with God so much because God is all about people making investments for the future. So before we get to the life of Joseph, let's go pro for a few moments and let's see what the book of Proverbs has to say about legacy. In Proverbs 11:7, seven, it says, when a wicked man dies, his hope perishes. All he expected from his power goes to nothing. Now I want to make sure we understand that word wicked because we could think that means, oh, that's the criminal that I read about. You know, that's the guy they're looking for. Who's the fugitive, who looks like he probably killed his girlfriend. Those are kinds of Images that we conjure up with the word wicked. But it's important for us that we understand what the actual Hebrew word means. It just means somebody who gets it wrong. It means the person who believes the wrong thing about life. And scripture says when a a person who gets it wrong dies, his hope dies with him. All he expected from his power goes to nothing. In Proverbs chapter 12 verse 7, here's here's another pro verse. The wicked die and disappear, but the family of the godly stands firm. I want to share something that my dad told me uh, right before he and my mom moved up here. For those of you who don't know, my dad was a longtime pastor. He pastored the same church in Fort Worth for 50 years. And he came here, and for 13 years, he was our care pastor before he passed. But toward the end of his tenure there, he was disappointed and discouraged about things that he had hoped to see happen in that church that didn't materialize. Now, I think he was hard on himself because he, he, he had a great fourth quarter. I mean, he led the church to a whole new campus, and they paid cash for it. So he did a lot of great things. But Dad, at the end of those 50 years, felt like maybe he had let God down. And so one day he was just sitting in my office talking, and he said, Mark, he said, you know, I don't know. He said, where we are right now, I kind of feel like a failure. And he started talking about what wasn't happening at the church he pastored like had happened 30 or 40 years before. And I said, "Dad, your your ministry's not in Fort Worth, Texas. Your ministry's all over the world." Your ministry is in my life in Wichita, Kansas. Your ministry is in Jonathan's life and, and Stephen's life and your grandchildren. And I started naming off the men who had been saved under my dad's ministry who'd gone to the mission field and were pastoring churches all over America. I said, dad, your church is all over the world. Well, I love that verse because it makes me think about dad. Even though he's been in heaven now for eight years, I just think the the Bible says the wicked die and disappear, but the family of the godly stands firm. That's a powerful statement. I mentioned my dad. You guys know how I talk about my grandmother who was his mother and how that she had the worst kind of situation. She had grown up in a dysfunctional home that was painfully dysfunctional. And for most of her years of marriage, my grandfather was not a believer, but she was faithful and stood faithful to God and loved ministry. And I got bored in a service in Texas. I shouldn't say that, should I? Does that ever happen to you here? Don't tell me. I was, this pastor was like meandering and I was actually in, well, I guess I'm going to give it away. I was in the town where my grandparents had lived. is probably seven, eight years ago. And I just started thinking about all the people who were in ministry, who were descendants of my grandmother. And by the time I got through, there were 38 of us. Why? Why? Because the Bible is talking about legacy. This is why people get inducted into God's hall of fame. The wicked die and disappear, but the family of the godly stands firm. That's a powerful statement. You ready for another one? This is even bigger. Proverbs 15, 24, the path of life leads upward for the wise, they leave the grave behind. Have you ever noticed when somebody lives for self and they don't think about legacy, their life is on a downward trajectory as they age? And it's like, well, I used to do this and I used to do that, but now I'm just looking for a soft, cushy place to land and I'm no longer productive. The Bible says that a godly woman's trajectory is always up. Her health may be failing. Her body may be failing, but her trajectory is up. And then it says, even when she dies, she's going to leave the grave behind. Her trajectory is up. So if you're a God follower, if somebody asks you, where are you going? You say, I'm going up, I'm going up. One more time. Let's look at that because here's the thing. We've been groomed to think, even in the Christian world, that life is all about making a lot of money and being famous and having a lot of followers on social media and then finding a cushy place to land when you get old. No, that's not what life is about. If you're a God follower, the path of life leads upward. They leave the grave behind. That's one reason why we love singing around New Spring. Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. My path is upward. I may be talking to somebody and you've been to the doctor and the doctor may have even said, you don't have too many months left. It's okay, you're going upward. Your trajectory is upward. By the way, here's the point. Here's God's point. This is why Joseph was in the Hall of Fame with his funeral arrangements. If it's true what we just read in Proverbs, shouldn't it change the way we spend our lives down here? Shouldn't it affect our choices and decisions? I mean, when that clicks... When this clicks for us, and we step back from the pressures that we're under today to do this or be that or have this, when we step back from those pressures, we see why Joseph's funeral arrangements were so big to God. Well, let's go into Joseph's life now. Let's get coached up. Let's recap. He's at the end of his life. You know clearly that God strategically brought him to Egypt. At the, really the beginning of the Hebrew nation, there were only 70 when Joseph's family moved to Egypt, only 70 of them. But they needed to be there because it was God's plan for them to proliferate. I mean, here's the thing. They would be there for over 200 years and they thrive there. But this is what is so critical for us to understand because when we start hearing about how God blessed Joseph in Egypt, we can sort of think, okay, I understand God's purpose in Joseph's life. God's purpose is to bring him to this place where he's running Egypt and running the world and living in this huge home and having a beautiful wife and having beautiful kids and living a life of consumption in Egypt. But Joseph never saw that as his purpose. I mean, he understood that he was only there for a while. Because see God had made a promise to Joseph's great-granddaddy His great granddaddy Abraham had left Ur of the Chaldees and God said to him several things. God said, Abraham, if you will trust me, I'm going to make a great nation out of you and I'm going to give you a land that's going to be your land and your homeland and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So Joseph is in Egypt and he understands that plan isn't going to happen in Egypt. And so now we sort of understand why he said... God is going to do something big. And even though I may be gone from the stage, I want to be part of it. So swear to me, swear to me that you will not leave my bones in Egypt. Now, when you start reading about the children of Israel going out of getting over to the book of Exodus, about them going out of Egypt into the promised land, one of the things the Bible says is somebody had the responsibility of carrying Joseph's bones And like I just hinted at, about 200 years and a million or so Hebrews later, a man named Moses came on the scene. And the rest, as they say, is history. So one more time. I mean, somebody could say, well, Mark, I mean, really, Joseph was in heaven with God. Why was it important for him to, well, I mean, here's the thing. You studied enough history to know that to the Egyptians, burial was a big thing for potentates. That's how we get the pyramids. And, and if you've studied Egyptian history, you know that when somebody important died, they used to put stuff in the tomb that they thought that this person was going to need in the afterlife. Do you see what Joseph's saying? Joseph's like, I'm not part of what I'm around. We'll get to that in just a moment. Joseph is like, God's going to do something great, and I don't want you to leave my bones in Egypt. So with that, and let's, let's, this is going to help us now because we're going to leave 1625 B.C., and we're going to go to 2021 A.D. What was Joseph really saying? Number one, I may be in Egypt, but I'm not of it. I may live here, I may work here, I may do business here, but this is not who I am. For those of you who like to study the Bible, it is interesting to me that God often lets people or places symbolize existential, spiritual, non-material things. Some of this is above my pay grade, but there are a lot of symbols in the Bible. We'll talk about that maybe someday. But for today, I just want to talk about Egypt, because whenever you see Egypt in the Bible, it always symbolizes the world. Now, i got to quickly define that, probably for some of us. When God talks about the world in most of these situations in the Bible, he's not talking about the planet. But he's talking about a world system. Throughout the Bible, we're taught that there is a world system that is bent or warped away from God. Hold on, because we're going to go to a painful place for just a moment. We are watching this world system get darker and more wicked and more troublesome as we get closer to the tribulation period and the coming of Antichrist. You and I live in a world where it is basically safe to be hostile against, well, I started to say a group of people, but really two groups of people, Bible, Christians, and Israel. It is amazing that our culture today is geared to be hostile toward those two groups. And what's interesting about that is, if you think about Israel, it was God's avenue to bless the world in the Old Testament, and the church is God's avenue to be a blessing to the world in the New Testament. What's amazing to me, and I don't think I've ever taught this, at least I haven't taught it in a long time, is if you look at the hostility against Christians in the world today, it. It's almost universal, but it comes from unconnected sources. I mean, in parts of Africa today, you have some Islamic extremists, specifically the Boko Haram and, um, and the Fulani Hertzman in Nigeria. Seventeen Christians are, are hacked to death every day in Nigeria. I want I to won't just let that settle in for a moment. Seventeen Christ followers are hacked to death in Nigeria Every day, and by the way, when we get close to christmas in our in our project generosity offering, one of our our one of our ministries we 're going to give to is a ministry that helps persecuted Christians around the world and their families in India. we see persecution growing against Christians. there was a sixteen year old boy i 've been praying for him. He died this week, and he was This community was warned by these extremists that Christians were not welcome. He and his 18-year-old brother were holding prayer meetings. He was going to buy groceries a few weeks back. And someone threw what he thought was water on him, but it was acid. And he burned 65% of his body, and he died this last week. Just because a 16-year-old boy, he was a Christian. We're watching it in parts of Europe. And there, it's not as much religious, it just tends to be more political. And then, hey, even if you go to an American university, you're probably, if you're a Christ follower, if you're a biblical Christ follower, you're going to feel the hostility. And there, it's not from religion, but it's from what we, I guess, call postmodern political correctness. And even in Christian so-called denominations, we're seeing hostility toward Bible Christians. And in communist China, I mean, if you're keeping up with that, I mean, I was just reading what a young woman wrote about being a Christ follower, and she was put into a camp that was to restructure her thinking, and she said, after a week of that, you're not really wanting to live. I didn't even mention entertainment. We live in a world system where really, when it gets right down to it, the main thing that It's okay to be hostile toward, is a biblical Christian. Now, here's the thing, because I'm talking about the world and the world system. None of those groups are in collusion with each other. The extremist group in India is not in collusion with the extremist group in Africa, and they're not in collusion with American universities, and they're not in collusion with entertainment in our world today. So they're not in collusion. In fact, in many cases, their own beliefs contradict each other's beliefs. You say, Mark, you're paranoid. No, I'm not paranoid. I'm just, I mean, first of all, anyone that had just a cursory knowledge of what's going on in the world would know that that's not the case. Here's what the Bible says about the system that you and I are living in. In James chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God? Now, that... That may not be easy to hear, but it's in the Bible. Let me read it one more time. Don't you realize that friendship with the world, and we're not talking about the planet, we're not talking about the people in the world, we're talking about this toxic system that is bent toward evil. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you the enemy of God? I say it again, if you wanna be the friend of the world, you make yourself the enemy of God. But I hear Christ followers, and I would respond this way too, who would say, well, wait a minute, Mark, I mean, Yeah, I see this system, but i got to live here. i got to work here. Bingo. We're getting very close to what Jesus said about the relationship of Christ's followers in this world system. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. This is just probably a few hours before he's going to be arrested. And we call John 17 the high priestly prayer because it's right before Jesus goes to the cross... I always feel like I'm kind of in the holy of holies when I read John 17 because it's one member of the trinity talking to another member of the trinity and here's what he said about you and me I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world we almost are expecting Jesus to say father get them out of here It's not what he says. Watch this. I'm not asking you, Jesus said, to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. That's Joseph in Egypt. He's in a system that he's not part of. He's in a system that is hostile toward what he believes. But he's called to be in it, never of it. So with that in mind, let me just share with you a couple of things because you and I are living in a world similar to Joseph's world. And here's the first one. Even though Joseph did not feel at home in Egypt, the solution was not to hide out and become weird. How many, how many of us have been part of a Christian tradition that believe that the way to, to live for Jesus is just to be separated from the rest of the world and to look weird? I mean, I, I didn't grow up in this particular tradition, but I remember when I was a kid growing up, there were like these Christian traditions where women could not wear makeup. I mean, where I remember growing up, you know, where you, 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 I, I couldn't even begin to tell you the quirky stuff that I was taught when I was a kid. Here's the deal: if you love your enemies, you'll be weird enough. I mean, if if you're kind to those who hurt you, you'll be weird enough. So it's important for us to understand that God is not calling us to be in a monastery and withdraw from the rest of the world. Just the opposite. I mean, here's the thing. It takes us back to rule number one of spiritual warfare. Our enemies are never people. And even those who are part of a system that are hostile toward us, you know, we have to understand they are victims of the world system. We are called to make a difference in their life. We're not called to be their enemies. We're called to be their lifeline. And that's why Jesus said, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. And you and I, as dark as this world's getting, we would kind of like that, wouldn't we? I mean, we're looking forward to Jesus coming. More and more days, I pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. But we were called here to make a difference. Jesus was saying, in essence, I want, I want your children to be a blessing to people, even if they are against, they're against them. When you look at the life of Joseph, we've talked about this, I've joked about it. He looked like an Egyptian, dressed like an Egyptian. How many times have I done this? Walked like an Egyptian, spoke the language. He worked hard to be a blessing. He gave them his best. I know that Joseph didn't sin to fit in. He didn't join in their cat worshiping and their debauched living. But just because he was a God follower, he didn't poke his finger in in their eyes and call them names. In fact, here's the thing, Christians. He did everything he could to connect. There's a lesson for us here. Although Joseph was clearly not at home in Egypt, God had sent him there to do a job and he did his best to add value and he didn't make any unnecessary enemies. Here's the thing. If you follow Jesus, you will have some enemies and you can't do anything about it. You may love them. They may choose to be your enemy. But God help us as Jesus followers not to make enemies because we're hostile toward people who may even be hostile toward us. But although Joseph did his best to be a blessing, the second thing is he never lost sight of who he was. You know, it's true Joseph had a good job in Egypt. It's true he found his wife there. It's true that he raised his kids there. And I think it could be said Joseph had some very good times in Egypt, but it was never home. There's a verse, when I think about the things that I brought up today, there's a verse that I think about a lot in the book of Philippians chapter 3. It says our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, you know, I've joked about this for the years. I I mean, I'll tell you the part I joked about it. Well, I don't. These days I say I'm an American by birth. I'm a Kansan by choice. I've been here 36 and a half years. I used to say something terrible. I used to say, I'm an American by birth. I'm a Texan by the grace of God. and I'm a Kansan by choice. But I've left that out because I don't like Texas anymore as much as I used to. It's crowded and the people talk funny down there. So. <laughs> but at the end of the day, all joking aside, my citizenship is in heaven. I mean, do you hear that from Joseph? I mean, he's like, he's giving them his best. He's fitting in. He's trying to be a blessing, but he basically says, don't leave my bones here. The way he looked at it in this world, in Egypt, he was here on a temporary visa. He was here on a work permit. And that's how we look at this world. That's the first thing he's saying. When he said, don't leave my bones in Egypt, the second thing he's saying, this is really big to me. He's saying, God's going to do something great in the future, and I want to be part of it. I mean, I know he was a great administrator. He had the job of basically running the world, so I know I kept him busy. But I really believe Joseph lived every day of his life thinking about the promise to his great-grandfather. And I I can just get into his head, and Joseph is thinking, maybe today. When he got up in the morning, got into his Bentley and headed for the office, I think he said, maybe today is the day when God's going to let us have our own country. Somebody could have said, Joseph, you're not thinking straight, boy. Look at all you have. If God were to bring you into that new land, you'd have to move out of your house, that palace that you live in. And Joseph's like, it's not a problem for me. God's going to do something great. And I want to be part of it. You know, somebody might say, sir, don't you understand? You would have to resign your position here at the palace. You couldn't shop at the fine shops anymore downtown. Joseph would say, it doesn't matter. And I think he lived every day like that. Maybe today. Maybe today. Just kind of like we look forward to Jesus coming. But as Joseph grew old, and he knew that death was imminent, he had probably to accept what he considered reality. He wasn't going to live to see the great working of God in his lifetime. But he knew it was coming. And however he could, he wanted to be part of it. Could I ask you a question as I ask it of myself today? Because one more time, we've been so groomed in America to think in terms of personal achievement and personal acquisition. What are you investing in right now that will outlive you? One more time. You can say, hey, Mark, I I make all this money now. Okay, that's great. That's wonderful. Like, well, Mark, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going on this vacation next month. Okay, it's great. What are you, as a Christ follower, investing in that will outlive you? Because, after all, that's how Joseph got in the Hall of Fame. One more thought before I leave and before we go home today. What Joseph was saying when he said, Don't leave my bones in Egypt, he was saying, Egypt, and we know by symbol, this world. Egypt is not enough for me. I mean, he had the very best that Egypt had to offer. I mean, for the 13 years where he didn't, but for most of his life, he had the very best. He could have basically anything he wanted in Egypt. And there's a part of us that would say, Joseph, why are you so freaked out about what's going to happen to your bones after you die? But Joseph's like, you don't understand. As glitzy as Egypt is, it's not enough for me. I've lived a number of years. You know, um, I was 28 when I came here. I'm amazed at how fast is God. I think I was just having such a great time. For some reason, known only to God, his grace has smiled on me in an unusual way. Every once in a while, I hear people say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God why this and why that. I I really have one question for God. That's a why question. I want to ask him, why are you so good to me? Because I can think of a million reasons why it shouldn't have been. I've been married to my best friend. And the joy of my life. I have wonderful sons and daughters-in-law and the world's greatest grandkids. (laughs) And I have had the greatest job in the history of the world. I get to be your pastor. I've been blessed to this day with good health. I don't have any medical conditions. Like I say, when I look at far, far better people, far more godly men and women who go through so many burdens, uh, I wonder why is God so good to me? I have a wonderful life. People talk about living the dream. I really am. But this world is not enough for me. People still age. And every day I hear about people getting cancer. And as I heard from you, so many of you last week, hearts still break. And bad people still hurt good people. And new fears come along every day. And people still die stood by the casket of a 20-year-old Newspringer this week. A wonderful young man who loved God and loved this church and loved to worship. And I stood by his casket and put my hand on it this week and I thought I don't do very well with caskets and brown hair. No. Even at its best, this world is never good enough. I want to close today where I started because remember Joseph got in the Hall of Fame with all the great things that he did. He got in the Hall of Fame by his funeral prearrangements. New Springers, why is God so big on this? Well, if you kept reading in the Hall of Fame chapter, Hebrews, the Bible would tell us. Let's read. All these great people continued living with faith until they died. They did not get the things God promised his people, but they were happy just to see those promises coming. They accepted the fact that they were like visitors and strangers, a better translation is tourists, here on the earth. When people accept something like that, they show they're waiting for a country that will be their own. If they were thinking about the country they had left, they could have gone back, but they were waiting for a better country, a heavenly country. Look at these two lines. So God is not ashamed to be called their God. Whoa. I would hate to be... A person who is born again, but have God be ashamed to be my God. And if I live for this world, that's what I just read. If all I lived for is what I can get out of this world, God may love me. He may have birthed me into his family, but he's ashamed to be called Mark Hoover's God. But if, on the other hand, I see my time here just to make a difference and to love the people of the world, even if the world system is bent away from me. If I see myself as strategically placed like Esther, you know, in the book of Esther, you know, Mordecai said to her, how do you know that you weren't brought to this place for just this time? And I ask you today, how do you know? That you won't put exactly where you are to make a difference in this world. And if you see your life as an investment in eternity, God is up in heaven saying, Lord, I sure am thankful to be her God. I'm glad glad he belongs to me. I'll just read it one more time. Those people, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. What kind of city? What do we have to look forward to? I shared with you that I was preaching Dawson's funeral. We had a service for him here, and we had a service at the graveside. And at the graveside, I, I read these scriptures because the scriptures have to do with the city that we're headed for if you're a Christ follower. I mean, we just said this world is not enough, so where are we headed? Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city. There it is, city. The new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, it was prepared like a bride dressed for her husband. In other words, it is one tricked out place. I mean, we can't even imagine how awesome heaven is. But now here's the thing. There's just that one little phrase about the extraordinary things in heaven. Let's get into why it should be very, very important to you and me today. I heard a loud voice from the throne. It said, now God's home is with his people. He will live with them. Oh, I won't have to worry about politics in because God is gonna live with us and will be their God. Now look at this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. <laughs> there will be no more death, no more sadness, crying, or pain. All the always are gone. The one who is sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. I'm gonna make every I'm gonna make a few of you mad at me, and you probably should get mad at me. I hate antiques. or somewhere else wants to go to a place that's got antiques. This looks like old junk to me. It's just, they're just one garage sale short. And I know some of you are like mad at me like, Mark, you don't know what you're talking about and you're so right. I, I agree. But I am thankful that in heaven, there are no antiques because the one that sat on the throne said, I'm making everything new. So... <laughs> Like Joseph, I may be in this world, but I'm not of it. And you know, I've been sitting here to do a job, and I want to do the best that I can. But the world is not enough for me. I mean, we're my baby boomers. It's like Peter Frampton's song, you remember that, Do You Feel Like I Feel? Do Do you feel like that? Because God up in heaven is looking for his daughters to put in the Hall of Fame. Who live like that? He's looking for some of his sons who are going through a hard time today, but that's how they see life. I'm out of time. How can I end this message without reaching out to anyone who may be yet to be part of God's family? You say, Mark, you've been talking about God's daughters and God's sons. How, do, how does that happen? You know what? It's free. How many of you discovered religion is not free? It's very expensive and a lot of times it's not a good investment. That's why we said at New Spring that we're not into religion. This book is God's plan for how you can become a member of his family for time and eternity. And scripture tells us this, that Jesus paid the price for it. Mary Alice and I were reading that in our devotions this morning. Jesus paid the price for you to get into God's family. Your mission has been paid for. You got a ticket waiting for you at Will Call will call that's perfect because the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls not might be could be, but will be saved. And if you're here today and you say, Mark, I want to be part of God's everlasting plan. Well, it's free. And all God is waiting for is a big yes. And all he asks is that you will believe that Jesus is who he said he is that he died for you on the cross. And three days later, he walked out of his grave under his own power and he's king of kings and the Lord of Lords. And if you invite Jesus Christ into your life, whoever calls will be saved. Hey, let's, let's end the service that way. Why don't you pray with me? If you're watching online, watching North Auditorium, watching on television, wherever you're watching from, you may be watching from prison today, but I'll tell you, God will hear your prayer if you'll join me. Say, I may be in the, You may be in the hospital or just going through a difficult time. Give Jesus a chance to do what he does in your life. Let's pray. I'll pray these lines slowly. You can decide if you want to pray them. Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm broken and I can't fix myself. But I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And because Jesus is alive, I want Jesus to be my savior and my king. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for receiving me into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, give me 30 seconds more. If you just prayed with me, I have a gift for you. If you're at New Spring today, you can can have this when you leave. If you're watching online, you can follow these same instructions, and uh, and then we'll get this to you. Uh, But all you have to do is text the word PRAYED, P-R-A-Y-E-D, to 97000. And then when you get back to the guest service, all those places have this blue and white color. So when you get back on the campus, you can walk out there and you say, Mark, I don't have my phone. Just say, I pray with Mark, and they'll give this to you. They have no agenda. They just want you to have it. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you very soon. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services.